So last night we were kind of going into the weeds, some of the details, so particularly hindrances, etc. Uh, and I know there's some people actually learn best by getting all the details together, and from that they sort of extrapolate out what the larger picture is. And there are other people that kind of need the larger picture before they can actually get a hold of the details. Um, they're just different learning styles and ways different people's minds work. Uh, tonight and tomorrow, I want to sort of go out and really get the, the large picture uh, of what's going on. Um, as I said, uh, when I was coming up for a title for this, I, um, the, the one I really liked was how Buddhism came into the world. Um, so what was it he was really, really about? Um, it's really, it's, uh, it's difficult uh, to project ourselves back uh, two and a half thousand years, a different age, a different time, a different country, a different continent, a different um, different political structure, uh, a whole different societal system, whole different economy, uh, very different worldview. To try to project her back there and then intuit uh, the innermost thoughts of a spiritual innovator like the Buddha. And so we end up projecting a lot of stuff on top of that. Um, and the information is scant, but we can put, put some pieces together. Uh, and even if we get a little bit more kind of sense of what it is he actually experienced, and also how his contemporaries heard his instructions, because he wasn't talking to us, he was talking to people he knew there. If we can understand how they heard this, then it becomes a lot easier to um, figure out how that relates to us today in our situation. Uh, so tonight I just want to tell you a little bit about his story. Uh, we don't actually know what his given name was. You know, tradition said it was Siddhartha, but uh, Siddha means... Um, uh, accomplish, and Artha means goal. So Siddhartha means one who accomplished his goal. So to me, that sounds very much not like a given name, but like a spiritual name that was given to you know a yogi after he attained something great later in life. It's hard to imagine parents lifting up their newborn child and say, ah, you have accomplished everything you have for life. We're going to call you Siddhartha. Um, we're pretty confident that his family name was uh, Gotama and that his clan name was uh, Sakya. The, um, the Sakyas were uh, a clan of warriors, or a clan of fighters, uh, that occupied a small area of the northern part of the uh, Ganges River Valley about two, 3,000 years ago. So uh, he was born into a tribe of fighters. That's what he came into. Tradition says that his uh, father, um, Sedona, was a king. Well, I'm not so sure. At least not a king how we understand it. Uh, at that time, the Ganges Valley was a collection of um, relatively autonomous principalities. And his father was the head guy of one of these. 
So he was really much less of a king and more of like a, I don't know, an independent duke. Or the, uh, or maybe a better way to say it, he was like a clan chieftain. Um, but not a, but not a king in the sense that we usually think of it in the West. Um, his father was said to be um, highly esteemed by those around him, and that seems credible to me. It would take somebody who's highly esteemed to keep a tribe of warriors together. Uh, tradition says, uh, I'm just going to refer to him as Sri Godama uh, for a while here. We don't know what his uh, given name was, uh, and Sri is a sort of a generic, it's sort of like Mr. In some situations it has a more elevated quality, but Oftentimes it's just like, you know, Mr. So. Um, uh, the later tradition says that Sri Gotama uh, grew up in a palace. And, um, but there were certainly no uh, drawbridges or moats or high turrets or high ramparts. Erica and I had, uh, had lunch at his house uh, about 11 years ago. His... Uh, his uh, homestead in Kiplavathu, which is right along the, the border between uh, Nepal and India, is uh, the homestead in Kiplavathu had really been lost uh, in history uh, until about 50 or 60 years ago. Some archaeologists figured out where it was in this seemingly empty field, uh, and they excavated down about four or five feet and were able to expose the base of all the walls. And so if you go there today, you look out and you see kind of like a footprint of what this place was like. So you see the, you know, the footprint of this big house, and, and there, there was, it's like a double retaining wall uh, around the whole thing um, that encloses, I don't know, maybe four or five acres. I didn't think about that much. So really not that huge. Um, so... Uh, when we were there just looking at it and stand back and taking pictures of it, to me it sort of had the image of a spacious villa. Um, and this villa uh, was out in this out in this valley. They lived a lot closer to nature uh, back then than we do. I mean, for one thing, the population of the Ganges Valley is somewhere between 50 and 100 times greater than it was during his day. So there was just more nature per capita. And, um, and it was an agrarian culture, too, so they were much more finely attuned to the cycle of the seasons. And nature was quite generous to them. Uh, the fertile Ganges Valley uh, produced, um, easily produced more food than they really needed. So it was, it was quite a prosperous time. Um, there was, uh, it just was not difficult to, um, to feed yourself and your family. So with all this prosperity, there was, uh, there was a lot of leisure time. So there was time for music and arts and poetry and literature and time for contemplation and time for studying the ancient Vedic scriptures if you were so inclined. And, uh, and with that prosperity, it was also a time of social innovation so somebody could move into some of the small cities and with just a little bit of entrepreneurial energy could rise above the uh, traditional expectations uh, for 
whatever caste they had been born into. So this caste system was starting to get a little squishy back then. The Buddha is sometimes given credit for starting to break that down by inviting people into the sangha of all castes. Um, and I don't want to take away from him for doing that, but it actually was going on already. He was just actually following the trend a little bit in that. It was also quite possible for hippies to just uh, drop out of the workforce and beg. There was enough food to go around. It wasn't a problem. Uh, And a lot of people did. But it was mostly older men. So as they got up into their, their later years, they would turn over the family business or the farm to the next generation coming up. Uh, and they would wander off looking for spiritual uh, fulfillment. Uh, the families back then tended to live in these large, multi-generational uh, clusters uh, with all the hubbub um, that you would imagine with that. So if you wanted a little bit of peace and quiet, you kind of had to wander off into the woods. And a lot of people did. And these wanderers were called bhikkhus, which literally means beggar. A couple thousand years later, when the English first came in and saw these people wandering around who they called bhikkhus, they translated the term as monk because the modern bhikkhus, and I think the ones back then, tended to dress in robes and walk with this contemplative deportment. Uh, but the term actually means, uh, means beggar. They um, had a little bit more reverential attitude towards beggars than we seem to have today. With all those seekers, uh, it was also a time of spiritual innovation. There were sanghas and people and just all over the place. And that actually continues on. When we were traveling in India, there's like a guru on every corner, most of them riding bicycles. Um, The tradition says that uh, Sri Gautama grew up in a 5th century BCE version of the Truman Show. Do you remember the Truman Show? Jim Carrey plays this guy who, as a baby, had been bought by a corporation. And then the corporation raised him in a reality TV show, you know, with hundreds of actors in this uh, this television setting that was bigger than a small town. And uh, for the first 29 years of his life, um, Truman thought it was all real. (laughs) He was the only, only one that didn't know it was actually a TV show. So the tradition says that for the first 29 years of his life, Sri Gautama grew up in the palace, the big palace where he was sheltered from all the harsh realities of life until in his uh, 29th year he was finally exposed to uh, disease, sickness, old age, and monks. And from that he was inspired to go off on a spiritual quest. That's what the later tradition says. Um, But in reality, you know, his his mother died in the first week of his life. And and so he was raised by his aunt. And his aunt and his mother were both married to his father. He had two wives. So it's hard for me to imagine he grew up all those years with nobody ever mentioning his birth mother. 
Um, and also, you know, life back then in that time, uh, you know, for us it was sort of like growing up on a large farm. You know, you don't grow up on a farm without having a lot of exposure to, you know, birth and death of all kinds. And um, as I was saying, they they lived in these large, close-knit, multi-generational um, families, extended families, in which the elders were, were deeply revered. Uh, so the kids weren't sheltered from the elders. So it's just hard for me to imagine he would, it would have gone all those years without being exposed to sickness, old age, and death. To say that, that he was sheltered from all that, you would have to uh, you know, imagine that he was probably pretty naive, uh, unobservant, uh, dim-witted, and uh, hopelessly idealistic. And, but the picture, of course, that emerges of this guy out of the text is uh, he certainly wasn't naive. He was very wise. He was smart. He could, um, he could spin on a dime, you know, this, you know, not only debating but also adapting his teachings to the proclivities and inclinations um, of his students uh, very, very rapidly. Very observant. You read any of the suttas, and there's lots of references and metaphors to all kinds of things in life. And uh, and he certainly was not idealistic. He just uh, he had really very little interest in um, in big visions and fantasies and um, metaphysical speculation. Uh, may get in trouble for this, but he's, you know, in some ways, it's more like a farmer. In the sense that sort of really practical down to earth, he was like interested in the practical down to earth stuff about how you deal with suffering in life, not all this speculation. Is, is there an indication that he was trained as a warrior since this is a warrior clan? It was a warrior clan. Uh, I haven't looked deeply enough into that uh, because it seems um, sort of disrespectful, but there's one story that. Um, uh, Yosadara, his uh, uh, his wife, Yosadara's father, uh, was not too fond of Sri Gotama because he just thought he, you know, he wasn't together enough, and so there was this big um, contest um, where people were showing their skills and bows and arrows and horsemanship and everything else, and he beat everybody. Who did? Sri Gotama. Yeah, uh, and so won the respect, and etc. Uh, that story has a little bit of a flavor of, uh, you know, sort of myth that had been created, but but you really wonder. Um, and in terms of exposure to it, even if they were sort of genteel warriors, but there was a lot of fighting going on back then, you know. But even if they were genteel, if they were the warrior clan and all the, because it was a, you know, it was one of the upper upper castes. Um, you know, to not have you know old war stories and you know, battles and fights and all that stuff seems like it would have been been part of it. Oh, and also talk about being sheltered. Um, after he became a spiritual superstar, um, his brother-in-law and cousin uh, Devadatta uh, tried to kill him at least three times. That we know of, 
And it's really hard for me to believe that that sort of family dysfunction suddenly emerged, you know, after he became enlightened and wasn't around exposure to that. Uh, plus the fact we know there's a lot of political intrigue going on, and he was in a political family. It was right, right in the thick of all of it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's usually described as, as jealousy. Uh, when he wasn't trying to kill him, he was also uh, wasn't plotting to kill him. He was trying to split the Sangha. And uh, some of the ways he tried to do it, he was asking for the, for the rules for the Sangha to be more restrictive. He wanted it to be more austere and then try to pull people away who were interested in that. Um, the only difficulty I have in looking at that stuff too literally is that it was uh, all passed down, you know, many centuries later through the Sangha, through all the people who were, you know, cheerleading for their, for the Buddha, and so I, you know, it could have very easily been slandered in all kinds of ways. Um, but I think you know the fact that they're that he was after him, you know, there's enough smoke there that there's probably some fire in it. So, um, the records of uh, his early life are really pretty sketchy, but he was born in, this, in a higher caste. He didn't grow up in a monastery, and he didn't grow up in a BCE version of a reality TV show. Um, and um, I find all this quite encouraging. You know, frankly, I mean, I didn't grow up in a sheltered life. You know, more privileged than some people, sure. But I, uh, and the, the fact that he was more likely exposed to a lot of the rough and tumble of life, including mean cousins and all kinds of stuff, people trying to kill him, and still became fully enlightened, uh, sort of means that whatever it is he accomplished, it wasn't because he was. Um, somehow sheltered from all the stuff and it's too late for the rest of us. It sort of makes it uh, more relevant to the rest of us. So, um, that's the world that he grew up in. And to um, you know, understand his message and how people heard him, it just helps to have a little bit of that background. Um, the records of his life become uh, a little bit richer starting in his uh, 29th year. And I, I, w- I was just tickled too that uh, you know in the Truman Show it was it was Jim Carrey who played him. It was his thirtieth birthday where the whole <laughs> you know where where the reality of this uh, of what the TV show was about uh, you know became known to him. And um, I'm sure there's nothing to that parallel, but it sort of tickles me. Um, in his 29th year, his uh, wife Yosadara uh, gave birth to Raula. Um, I don't know if he had other children, but it's it's the only child that we know of of his. Um, And um, he talks about um, looking in on his sleeping infant, you know, one evening. And uh, and what he wanted for Raula was what most parents want for their child. They want, you know, the highest, deepest, kind of full well-being and richness of life that's possible. And he realized that he didn't have it to give. Um, 
that he didn't actually know how to how to get that. And remember, he grew up in a wealthy family, in a prosperous time, uh, and had at his fingertips uh, all the best you know that that culture at that time that could produce. But still, excuse me. Still, things got messed up. Crops failed. Cousins were mean. Um, roofs leaked. Relationships drifted. Um, people died. Uh, as Paul Simon, singer-songwriter Paul Simon put it, everything puts together. Everything put together sooner or later falls apart. And so. Um, he realized that the lifestyle that he was following there wouldn't give him, and so he couldn't give it to his son, the kind of richness and depth that he wanted. So if he really wanted that for him, he had to look elsewhere. Well, another model that was around was all those bhikkhus. It was um, pretty rare for somebody his age to go off and become a, a wandering bhikkhu like that. But there was a model there and the inspiration and this uh, sense of uh, it was worth looking into. And as he reflected on this later, he said he you know, was, was looking in at, Rula, at Raula and he realized that uh, if he didn't go off in that quest right away, that the bond he had with his son would be more than he could possibly overcome and he wouldn't be able to leave. So um, he called on his bodyguard, Chana, uh, and together in the middle of the night they snuck out of the family compound. And when they had gotten far enough away, he, he took off his clothes, put on monk's robe, shaved his head, and uh, traded in the life of a uh, well-to-do warrior for the life of a barefoot monk on a spiritual quest. So I, I think of it as the focus of his attention at that point shifting um, away from the outer world and shifting more into the inner world to see what he could find there. Some people like to uh, refer to him as a deadbeat dad, you know, who walked out on his family responsibilities, uh, you know, to pursue his own selfish interests. Um, and you can try to make that case, but to make it, you really have to ignore the whole family context. Uh, you know, his family was was embedded in this caring network of people. He didn't take any of the family resources. He left it all with, uh, with them. And I think of it a little bit more. It's not unlike an alcoholic father going off to rehab for the sake of his son. <laughs> you know? He knew he just didn't have it, and so he was going off for his sake. And after he was enlightened, within the first year after that, he did go back home. And he did reconnect with Raula. And Raula eventually became one of the youngest monks to ever to join the Sangha and became a fully enlightened Arahat. So he did bring a deeper contentment to his son than he could have as a lay dad. Um, Didn't his wife start the nun order too? Yeah, yeah, Padrapani. Um, 
which is kind of an interesting story because it took some convincing to get him to do that because it was uh, because it was um, uh, misogynistic culture at that time, and there was uh, pardon, and still is, and still is, yeah. So. Um, So his focus is turning inwards, and for, and particularly in that part of the world, for uh, many, many centuries, their saints and seekers had been developing practices and looking inward, and there was a, a rich uh, variety of tools and practices available to them uh, to try on. Um, they were all based around a particular world, a particular view of how spirit and the world operate together. Uh, the um, prevailing sentiment was that there are spiritual forces and there are worldly forces and they're in conflict with one another. And so if you can suppress uh, the worldly forces, it makes the spiritual one stronger. Um, and by the way, as I go through this, I would, I would invite you just to uh, reflect lightly as it would go along to your own practice uh, in places where this may connect in with it, because as you know, with this practice, as we've learned here, um, you know the Buddha, you know, eventually did not teach that fierce, you know, suppression. That it, and many of you have tried it. You know, I tried it, and found that it just doesn't work. But uh, there was not another model back then, and that model really uh, appealed to the warrior mentality. You know, suppressing the emotions and the bodies and uh, instinct and stuff for the sake of a, of a deeper bliss. So, um, Venerable Gotama's um, first teacher that we know about that he studied with was a guy by the name of uh, Alara Kalama. Uh, and we actually know about Alara Kalama from outside Buddhist circles. Uh, he was quite well known back then, so this was not something that was made up. Had a very large sangha, and so he went and he trained with uh, Alara Kalama. And Alara Kalama taught him how to suppress body, emotion, mental activities, uh, and go into a deep state of mental absorption that they called the realm of nothingness. He redefined those terms later, but it's called the realm of nothingness. And he became so adept at this that um, Alara Kalama invited... Um, Venerable Gotama, we'll call him Venerable now, he's a monk, invited Venerable Gotama uh, to come and lead the Sangha with him, that they would, they would share it together. He was so adept at this. Um, and Gotama declined. Um, despite the, uh, the deep equanimity that can come out of the mental absorption into the realm of nothingness, it's really just a temporary state. You know, that inner bliss was not eternal bliss. So he would come out of that state and there was all this um, freed hatred, delusion, and other stuff going on inside him. Um, you know, I did my own version of this. Um, when I was uh, first started training in this, uh, you know, in the, I call it SAVE, Standard American Vipassana, um, I was really convinced that I didn't have enough concentration and that that was really getting in my way. So I went into 
see uh, Larry Rosenberg, who is the um, um, the main teacher at the Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, Insight Meditation Center. Really wonderful teacher. He's a, he's a wonderful man. I, I went in to have an interview, and I expressed my concern to him about this, and he told me, he said, you know, in this tradition, you don't need that much concentration. You know, He said, you know, if you can count uh, ten breaths ten times, that's plenty. And so uh, me, with my German blood, went home and, uh, and dutifully tried to see if I could count 100 breaths, 10 breaths, 10 times, 100 breaths, without having my attention waver at all. You know, so breathing in, one. Breathing in, two. And if I was going along, you know, breathing in, 27. Wow, I'm getting pretty far. Oops, I drifted. Breathing in, one. Uh, and I eventually was able to do it. It took me nine months. Uh, and, um, and I kept on going with it because having done it once, you know, so I got, got to the point where I could uh, reliably count a hundred breaths without having my mind drift. And then I looked to see what my mind looked like. And it was, it was like a steel trap. It was like, just, I thought, boy, this is worthless. You know, there was nothing in that. So, I, uh, you know, I don't know what happened with Venerable Goldman, but I used to imagine going to the deeply absorbed states and come out of, out of it and find the mind tight and loosen up and there's all this stuff around. But whatever the case, it wasn't enough. It wasn't, it wasn't true freedom. So he left Alara Kalama. His next teacher was um, a guy by the name of uh, um, Udaka Ramaputta. Udaka Ramaputta. Uh, Puta means son of, so it was Udaka, son of Rama. Uh, and uh, Udaka Ramaputta is also uh, very well known in ancient times, and with all kinds of records, even from outside of Buddhism, even a larger Sangha, very popular teacher, large groups. And um, his father, Ramaputta, son of Rama, his father Ram, Rama had... Um, known and had mastered a deeper state of absorption called neither perception or non-perception. And um, Udaka Ramaputta had not mastered it, but he knew the instructions, and his father was dead and gone. So Ramaputta was able to give um, Venerable Gotama the instructions for, go- for getting into neither perception or non-perception. And so um, Gotama undertook that practice, and he was able to master it. So he passed his teacher and uh, went into a deeper kind of absorption than, than probably anybody at that, at that time, any of his contemporaries could. And so Udaka Ramaputta offered to step aside and turn the sangha over to him, Venerable Gotama, uh, and Ramaputta would become one of his students. Um, Remind me if you want later. We can go back and I can take some of the stories apart. There's, there's, uh, I don't want to get off on that. Uh, so, um, what happened to Venerable Gotama uh, was it was the same thing. He would go into these deep states and he would come out of it, and there was still the seeds of greed, hatred, and delusion, 
So he declined the offer. And at that point, he seemed to give up on teachers. And so he went off and practiced on his own. Uh, and as he was doing that, gradually, there were other monks that were practicing on their own. And there was this little group of five or six of them that, that uh, they ended up practicing together in the, uh, in the hills of Rajagaha. It's this little town in the uh, Ganges River Valley practicing uh, up there in the mountains. Uh, none of them were the teacher. They were just, uh, just companions on the path. And as he started practicing with them, he took on more and more of these ascetic practices. Uh, you know, of deep fasting, of wearing very few clothes, certainly no contact with women. Um, just very, very ascetic practice. He was down to the point where he was had, eating very few calories a day. Um, and he said that when he touched, touched his stomach, he could feel his spine. Um, his hair began to fall out. His skin was turning black. Um, I don't know if I read it or something. He was losing some teeth. I mean, that happens with that you know, deep, deep malnutrition. Uh, and so he was following this stuff, and, and he realized he was right on the edge of death. You know, he had taken those practices as far as they could go. If he kept on going to that, he was going to die. He still wasn't awakened. He still was not enlightened. And um, so what was he going to do? Um, he just he finally accepted that the, these practices really didn't work, and there's uh, there's a, a way in which uh, I mean, I still feel like you know we have a debt of gratitude for him just for that part, you know because he took those practices out as extreme as you can go, and if he hadn't done that, then we could sit here and say well maybe he gone just a little bit further, but he was just right on the brink of death, you know he couldn't go any further without dying. So after six and a half years of practice, he rejected the path of the spiritual warrior, the path of this uh, deep ascetic denial. Uh, frail and famished, he wandered out of those hills, wandered out into the Ganges plain. Uh, and he got, um, this is about two or three miles, uh, and he just ran out of energy. He just couldn't move any farther. Uh, and so he sat down under a tree uh, and just leaned back against it. You know, death was was very close. At that time, uh, the folk religions in the Ganges Valley were all centered around tree spirits, devas. So every village had a tree in the middle of it that was the uh, was the home of this uh, tree spirit of a deva. And so what would happen to the young women when they came of age, you know, like 12 or 13, is they would marry the deva. And the idea was that, you know, a few years later they may marry a human, uh, and who knows whether the human would be faithful, but the deva would always be faithful to them and always be their, be their protector. Um, so there was this uh, young woman, Sujata, who had married the... Uh, tree deva, and a couple of years later had uh, married a human, a young man. And she wanted more than anything else to have a baby, you know, by her human husband. And about the time that Venerable Gotama was wandering out of the hills of Rajagaha, 
she realized that she was pregnant. And she was overjoyed. It was, it was just her dream, what she wanted. And so she made up this offering to bring to the tree deva. Uh, and one of the traditional offerings was this uh, pudding called kheer that's made of uh, milk and rice and uh, flower petals and, and spices. Um, they say it, honey. And honey, yeah, uh, it's sweet. Uh, they say it tastes, uh, uh, it's similar to human breast milk. So she made up this gift of, of kheer and brought it to the tree deva. And as she approached the tree, there was this being that was sitting underneath the tree. And when it's black and, uh, and skin and bones, it didn't look terribly human, had a huge aura. And so she took it to be the deva. And so she offered, offered uh, this being the, the kheer. In fact, it was Venerable Gotama. You know, with all those practices, the deep absorption, you can just imagine it. It must have had an aura that went out, you know, 50 feet uh, and famished and dying, etc. So she gave it to him. And um, so this is the story of the milk maid. Yes, Sujata. This is Sujata. Didn't she feed him? Uh, uh, no, she she offered him. Uh, she offered him this, and um, and this created a huge dilemma for him. Uh, because as an ascetic, you know, that had spent so many years on these practices to speak to a woman, to talk to a woman, to accept luxurious food, sweet foods from a woman, to accept cure from this beautiful young woman, was scandalous just absolutely scandalous. Um, and so there was, you know, a lot of his, uh, his training to just uh, reject it. But, of course, he'd become dilute, um, disillusioned with all these practices. He had rejected them. And so um, what was he going to do? He was on the verge of death. So he accepted it. Uh, and I think with that act... Of, of accepting the cure from Sujata, I think that's the moment Buddhism was born. If, if, if you want to pick one symbolic moment when, uh, when Buddhism appeared in the world, it was just that simple gesture of accepting that cure. Because it was, uh, in doing this, he was symbolically embracing the feminine as well as the masculine the earth as well as the sky, of uh, you know, the dark as well as the light. He was opening up to all of it. And he was moving away from these religions of the extreme towards um, what he was soon, very soon after that, articulate as the spirituality of what he called the middle way between all that. Um, eventually, I think she figured out that he wasn't the tree deva, but she came back every day to bring some food to him and, uh, and nourished him. And after about a week, he had enough strength so that he could get up. And he walked, it's about half, three quarters of a mile um, down to the Naranjar River. Uh, Naranjar River is about 50 or 60 feet wide and, and, and very, very shallow. And so he could... Um, 
in a way to cross that. And on the other side of the river was this grove of fig trees. Uh, and it was, um, it was a quiet, comfortable place uh, where you could easily sit and meditate you know, in the shade next to, the, next to this river. So he sat down at the root of a tree in, uh, in the late afternoon and he could sense that you know, all the stuff that he'd been looking for and seeking and, uh, you know, and struggling and trying to figure out, it was feeling like it was kind of, it was, it was like it was beginning to come together. So when he closed his eyes, he was no longer um, tempted you know, to push anything away. Thoughts, feelings, everything else. Um, if you think about it, um, his attempts to control the body and mind through all these practices had failed. Well, so if you can't control it, I mean, what's left to do? We thought maybe he just ought to observe it, see if he could figure out how it operates. Uh, and you can't really understand something if you're trying to fight it off the whole time. So he, so he sat down there uh, with this commitment to just observe what happened, to see if he could see how this more clearly how this whole mind, body, heart, spirit, energetic system operates. And so what do you imagine the first thing that happened? Hindrances. So if you think about it, it's sort of like if you try to hold a beach ball underwater and you relax, it sort of flies up. Well, for six and a half years, he had held defilements at bay, pushed aside feelings, shoved all this stuff down, fears, irritations, desires, all that stuff, had been systematically trying to squelch and suppress all that. So sitting under that tree, when he stopped suppressing them, they just flew up in his face. Uh, just a massive amount of stuff just blew up into his awareness. He had just an incredibly massive hindrance attack. Um, and of course, back then, they didn't have the uh, language of modern psychology. Uh, they describe inner workings in terms of, uh, of people and demons and, and spirits and stuff like that, which is kind of how it feels, really. Uh, and so he said it was like he was being attacked by 10,000 demons and he was being allured by 10,000 fair maidens. So all this stuff was swirling around in him and he was not trying to push any of it away. He wasn't trying to indulge it, wasn't trying to go into it, but trying not to push it away, but just to see as clearly as he could what was going on without getting sucked into it, but without fighting it. Let his mind and heart expand a little bit so he could see it more clearly. But it just kept coming. It just kept coming and swirling and buffeting and draining his energy. Um, and he began to wonder, he said, well, maybe I ought to control this a little bit. You know, who am I, you know, to think that peace is possible for me? You know, what am I really doing here anyway? So there's a whole lot of doubt came in. His uh, faith was, was waning. And then in the midst of that doubt, uh, there was this, uh, this memory that came back to him when he'd been a little boy. 
uh, and his father was out in the field. He was the head guy. He was the the uh, clan chieftain, and was leading some kind of agricultural ritual, probably a spring planting ritual of some kind. And he was he was just a little kid then, so he was set off at the side with uh, with a nurse attendant uh, under a rose apple tree. And it was a spring morning, and they were outside, and he just uh, relaxed and uh, let his mind heart expand out, and it just became vast and quiet and peaceful and kind and loving and expansive. And it was completely effortless. He didn't have to do anything. It was right there. He just relaxed into it. So sitting under that fig tree with these massive storms of swirls of hindrances and all that stuff flying around, he remembered the sweetness of that afternoon. Uh, and it was, it was something he had experienced. Uh, and he knew that peace was really possible uh, because he'd felt it once before. In fact, without ease, it was completely impossible. So that little memory gave him the little extra bit of faith uh, to just not push the inner whirlwind at all, to just relax into it more and more. And as he relaxed into it, it began to slow down. Maybe the turmoil was just the residual resistance to it. It began to slow down until it uh, just became like a quiet breeze. Uh, the metaphor in, in the text is that all of the spears and arrows that the demons were throwing at him turned into flower petals. You know, So it's, it, they didn't actually disappear. They just ceased to be a problem. I was uh, meditating in Thailand. Uh, did I tell you about the dogs? Um, they don't have dogs and cats as pets in Thailand. You know, it's a third world country. It's a poor economy. It costs a lot to support them. But they got lots of dogs and cats. They're just all feral. And they're not treated very well. Except in the Wats. Except, you know, they're equivalent of monasteries. So I was, I was in this Wat. And there they're practicing kindness towards, towards all beings. So they feed the dogs and the cats. So they love to collect there. So you get all these packs of dogs uh, in these watts, and they do their dog thing, you know, trying to figure out who's the top dog and the, who's the lesser dog. And I would be sitting there meditating, and these dogs would be trying to kill himself on the door of my kuti. Uh, and, uh, and in the middle of the night, uh, they went on the terrorist watch patrol or something like any little uh, shuffle of anything, and they would bark, and they would bark, 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 and was, this raucous would go through all of them. They're all over the place. When I was first there, it was uh, it was incredibly distracting. These dogs all over the place and this noise. In fact, when I was first shown to my cootie, I took my sandals off and a dog picked up one and ran with it. <laughs> I had to barefoot run it down. But um, so it was it was this this incredible mess. And then after I was uh, training there for about a week or ten days, I was sitting and I realized all all the dogs had gone. Uh, and I was alive. I couldn't figure out what that was. And so I just, you know, let my awareness go out there. No, they hadn't gone. They were all there. They were howling away as, as before. But somehow in me, they had just become part of the sounds of life. They were just part of the movement of energy around me. It's no longer a problem. They hadn't changed at all. And so I, I 
think that's what happened to the Buddha. It was a big time version of that. Mine was just a little of uh, of just feeling all all those those energies is no longer a problem. And so he just surrendered in to it, and it became like a quiet breeze. Um, and as the mind heart quieted, became subtler and subtler, there was deeper tension that was down underneath there that would come up surface, and so it'd relax into that and spread out into this quiet joy, and more would come up and it'd relax until pretty soon there was actually nothing left. The stuff kept coming up and relaxing until there was nothing, nothing left. So he had gotten into that space of nothingness, but without any tension in it, was totally at rest. Uh, but he could see that even the attempt to see that he was in nothingness, just to actually perceive that, would send little tiny ripples you know, out through his, his awareness. So he relaxed uh, even perception. So let go of, of even perception and, and went deeper into this place that's called neither perception nor non-perception. Um, without, without perception, without memory, without consciousness, there is also no suffering. Even the nothingness disappeared. So when the sun came up over the fig trees in the morning, the turmoil, turmoil was gone inside, and he realized that it was never coming back. So he had uh, he had accomplished his goal. He had become Siddhartha. He had become a Buddha. So now what? So now what, now what does he do? Well, what he discovered was so sublime that he uh, just hung out there in the fig grove um, for three or four weeks, just absorbing all the ramifications of it. Um, and he realized that what he had discovered was so subtle that he wasn't sure other people could understand it. Uh, and the reality is, uh, he had done something that is probably as, as close to impossible as I can imagine. To be a Buddha, what that means is to work out your liberation without help from anyone else. Uh, it's nearly impossible to do. None of us here could become a Buddha. We could become fully enlightened arahats, but we've got the support and the guidance from him. Uh, a Buddha is one that works it out without any support took him, you know, in the mythology, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes. Uh, very difficult to do. But he gradually realized that there actually were some people who were very close. And um, maybe they could work it out, maybe they could get there, or maybe not. But with a little bit of nudge from him or with some inspiration or some instruction, maybe they could do it. So he decided to teach. When he left the, uh, the fig grove, the first person he came upon was uh, this young yogi named uh, Upaka. And uh, Upaka approached him on the road, and as he saw him coming, he saw there was just something extraordinary about this guy. There was just, you know, his carriage and aura and all that. 
And so he said, uh, well, who are you? And, uh, and the Buddha says, I woke up. And, um, and Pali, uh, the word for uh, wake up is bud. So Buddha uh, means one who has awakened. So that eventually became the name or the title that stuck with him. And, uh, and then Upaka said, well, who is, who is your teacher? Who would you learn this from? And um, the Majjhimagaya number uh, 2625, the Buddha answers Upaka truthfully and with, uh, you know, he's just been out there and he's so inspired that all his words come out in verse. And so when Upaka asks him, uh, who is your teacher? Um, the Buddha responds, I am the one who has transcended all, a knower of all, unsullied among all things, renouncing all by craving ceasing freed. I have no teacher. And no one like me exists anywhere in all the world with all its gods because I have no person for my counterpart. And he goes on like this for several minutes. So I invite you to put yourself in Upaka's place. Okay. So you're going through some uh, public thoroughfare, you know, maybe through a subway station. And here's this guy that seems to be light and sweet and, uh, and glowing. And so you extend a polite greeting and he uh, replies by rapping in cadence. I'm the accomplished one in the world. I'm the teacher supreme. I am alone. I'm a fully enlightened one whose fires are quenched and extinguished and on and on. What would you think? Do you think he was on drugs? <laughs> so um, the suttas describe uh, Upaka's reaction. When this was said, the ascetic Apaka said, may it be so, friend. (laughs) (laughs) Shaking his head, he took a bypath and departed. (laughs) Uh, So he took the Buddha to be in that case and just kind of scooted away as soon as he could. Don't want to get involved with this guy. So I, I, I just, I, I mean, I love that scene. I just imagine, you know, the Buddha sitting there watching Upaka going down the road and kind of thinking, you know, I don't know, that didn't work so well. <laughs> uh, do you know that feeling? You know, I, I, um, I, for 25 years, I would come into the pulpit every September uh, having been away from my congregation, usually for a couple of months, I would get a month of vacation and a month of study leave. And so I would come into the pulpit in September and I was usually inspired and had all this stuff that I wanted to share. And I would just pour myself into those early fall Septembers and people would greet me at the door with these blank stares and saying, you know, oh, very nice. <laughs> Wonderful effort, you know. <laughs> And I would think, well, that didn't work very well. <laughs> um, and what the problem was, was that I was very connected with my inspiration, but not with them. And so it went right past them. So, you know, in the days and weeks after that, as I was reconnecting with the congregation, you know, I would go around and I would always carry in the back of my mind two questions. One is, uh, what are they most concerned about? And the other is, do I have anything useful to say about that? And, uh, you know, within a couple of weeks, uh, they were greeting me at the door with good eye contact and comments about the content, and we were back in the groove again. So um, I think most of us have experienced that, you know, where we get so inspired that we just actually speak right past the person. 
Being an enlightened Buddha doesn't mean that you know everything about everything. It just doesn't. Um, Larry Rosenberg talks about this monk that he met in Korea who was probably as clearly, uh, you know, just exquisitely trained and still believed the world was flat. So. Um, so again, there's this scene with Apaka disappearing down the path with, uh, you know, muttering under his breath and Buddha thinks, you know, that didn't go so well. I think I need a different approach. So, um, a number of days later, he, uh, on the outskirts of, uh, this little town called Sarnath, uh, which is about, uh, 13 or 14 kilometers from, um, the center of Varanasi, this ancient, ancient city. Um, the dogs here are too friendly. They're not keeping control. Um, he ran across his, uh, his old meditation buddies, uh, these five ascetics in this deer park. And, um, and this time when he met him, he, he listened and sensed what their concerns were and spoke to those concerns and spoke, you know, in a language they can understand. And the world basically hasn't been the same since. Uh, by the end of that first conversation with them, one of those five, uh, Kandanya, had become a fully enlightened arahat. Uh, and the other four had to practice with what he'd said for a few days, but just very quickly they became arahats. And I think that um, we owe a debt of gratitude to... Sounds of life take all different textures. So just send a little kindness, kind of soften into it. So you can kind of feel the pain that sort of that goes through your system a little bit. Yeah. So don't hold on to it, just let it run right through. I hired him. Mm-hmm. No. Shutting the windows. Keeping the noise out. Would you rather have the noise out or the would you rather have the, the air? Yeah. 
So, um, so as I was saying, I think we can be grateful to Kandanya and those other ascetics uh, that they got it and they woke up. Because I think if if the Buddha had failed, you know, if it hadn't worked that time, he probably would have gone back to the uh, the fig grove and disappeared from history. So, um, if accepting Sujata's gift marked the birth of, uh, of Buddhism, it was that talk with the five ascetics in the wildlife refuge in Sarnath that actually marked it coming into the world. It's, uh, the talk is known as the um, Dhammaka Kapavatana Sutta. I'm going to teach you to say that now. <laughs> Dhammaka Kapavatana Sutta. Um, the only language that has more A's in it than Pali, I think, is the, is the Hawaiian tongue here. Uh, uh, what, what that means is uh, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. Or I just, I, I have fun, I just call it getting the ball rolling. Uh, and in that talk he gave to them, he, um, he laid out the core of a meditation practice. Uh, as, as I've mentioned, and as you all know, the Buddha is really famous for his capacity to adapt uh, his teachings to the inclinations and the proclivities of who he's teaching. But there are some core practices that go through all his teachings. And in that, um, in that first talk to them, he laid all that out. And so he lays out what all of us have to do in one way or another to, uh, to wake up. And wouldn't it have been nice if somebody had taken some notes? <laughs> um, but they didn't. They, they didn't take notes on stuff. They didn't write things down. However, uh, the five monks did uh, repeat what they had heard, what they remembered, who repeated it to others. Who, so it was passed on. And after several hundred years, somebody finally wrote it down. And uh, you can find a, a later version of that in the Samudra Nikaya. It's that number 5611. There's actually an article on my website. It's called Turning Towards, where I go through that, that sutta line by line. Um, and I won't do all that tonight. And I won't do that tomorrow either. But tomorrow what I would like to do is to go back to that and just extract out those three uh, essential practices. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll take a look at those. And because uh, and, we are, and this practice that we're doing here is an implementation of those three, you'll see, but it's, it's good to get that larger framework. Um, but for now, I think that's probably enough for me. So let me sort of open it up to 
thoughts, comments, uh, questions? Um, I was thinking when he was finishing up with the second teacher, when he mastered the, the that jhana that the teacher didn't wasn't able to get to, like how. So he came back from that state, and he still saw greed and delusion. But how was he able to? What what stopped him from thinking? Oh, this is as good as it can possibly get. Like there's still greed and delusion, but I'm higher than anybody else, and like this is as good as life is going to be. Like how did he feel like there was something even more than that if nothing existed? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I have no idea. If we had a Buddha, we could ask him. Um, but um, I'll tell you the closest I've, I, you know, that I've, I've come to that myself, and it's, 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 it's a peril. It's, it's not the same thing at all. But uh, it was when I was looking at the refugees at, at one point, and, uh, and my thought was, but what if this? What if, what if this isn't true? What if taking refuge in the Buddha and the Sama and the Dhamma and the Sangha really don't make any difference? What if, um, you know, how how would I ever know that? Um, maybe they work really well right up to the end, and then they collapse. You know, it's the only person that could answer that would be a totally enlightened person. I didn't know any totally enlightened people, uh, and so what am I doing this for? And then what I realized, well. Uh, maybe maybe none of it works, but you know what else am I going to do? <laughs> what else are you going to do? Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But um, as uh, Molly Molly Oliver, no, what's Mary, it? Mary Oliver. Mary, Mary Oliver. Um, it's a poem about the grasshopper. She says at the end. So what do you what, so what do you want to do with one wild and wonderful life? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so I was looking at the refuges and I thought, well. You know, if if freedom is not part of my true nature, if I have to change something essential about who I am, you know, forget that. That's never going to work. Um, if I have to go against the laws of nature, I have to go against against the Dhamma in order to get free. Well, that's not going to work either because they're a lot bigger than I am. Um, but what if they do work? And so, what what, what am I going to do with my life? You know. So I'm either going to sit back and drink beer, or to um, keep on practicing with it and see how see how far you can go. Um, I, I would like to think, um, but this just may be desire on my part that he had a little more inspiration or clarity or faith or something, you know, than I did. But I think even without that, it's like if if you get over the bummer, <laughs> maybe it doesn't work, and just look at what your options are. It's like. So, I mean, what the heck? I mean, what what else is there anyway? Um, and as he described it, you know, his path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. So, you know, he's sort of well past the middle, so there's, there's stuff that works up to a certain point. Um, but it, it is an interesting one, one to contemplate. And um, and I don't know an answer to that other than just saying, so, <laughs> what are your choices? Yeah, I just... To me, it just raises the question of like, if there's a Buddha that is able to get to enlightenment without having anyone keep in that path, and he was one of the, the only ones at the time that went past that that next the last stage before that, then 
how do we know there's not like an uber Buddha or a Buddha square where there's even a stage beyond enlightenment that no one has just gotten to yet because you hit full enlightenment and Buddha taught you that path and it seems like the end of the path. So, I don't know if we want to go go down this one, but uh, if, uh, I, I'll just mention it and see if we want to run with it. Um, you know, Ken Wilber and uh, stages of consciousness that unfold. And so what we're talking about with the Buddha are actually affective states. Uh, and so that's one line of development of uh, you know direct experience. And there's another line of development, which is how you process information and assign meaning to it. So it's your understanding of that. And those stages of consciousness have been, uh, you know, in humanity have been steadily, you know, evolving in terms of what's possible. And um, and there are, there are clearly there's some new stages that are just starting to emerge that we don't know much about. So Ken Wilber looks at it and he says, well, what enlightenment really is, is that... Um, the, the capacity to go with effective states out and far, you know, completely into non-dual, etc. Those techniques in some capacity to do that have been around for a long, long, long time. But it's these stages of development that keep evolving. So in the Buddha's time, you know, there, there was no pluralistic point of view. So there was, uh, you know, what looks to us like, uh, uh, you know, sexist... Uh, Misogamy, but there wasn't any other choice that was actually in the consciousness of people. What about the Vedas and all the tradition in there about doing enlightenment? The Vedic traditions, wasn't that happening as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people were getting it. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were uh, getting something. That, that, yeah, they, they were getting something. The, the, the point uh, was and is that. Uh, what Ken Wilber says is what being enlightened means that, that you can go through all those states and you're at the highest level of consciousness that's available and that's going to be constantly changing, constantly evolving. Uh, in other words, so if, the, if we could transport the Buddha, you know, in the 21st century, I mean, would he make it as fully enlightened? Certainly, in terms of the deep states and stuff, he, he could he could get into, and he was way beyond you know his time because the highest stage that was generally available was uh, mythic literal at that time, which is sort of equivalent to modern day fundamentalism, and that's why and and what he talked about in terms of we have to discover the self, that's uh, that's a a modern rational value that didn't emerge in the West or anywhere uh, in any significant numbers until about the 15th or 16th century with the uh, Western Enlightenment. And so he was clearly there. Um, so he was you know, an, an outlier and all that. Um, and the difficulty of figuring out what was really going on back then is that the only information we have on it that there, there may be people, and Buddha clearly was, that had evolved beyond that, but most of that information was passed through mythic literal and, and people with, uh, with a different type of consciousness. Um, one time I used the, the metaphor, it's sort of like me going to a Stephen Hawking's lecture and come back and tell you what he said. You know, what I could transmit would be deeply limited by my understanding of theoretical physics. So, so a lot of what the Buddha was talking about was presumably passed along by people who, who could not understand it as fully as, as he did.
So what is the truth of him talking about remembering all his lives and all that? Is that just part of the folklore of it, or was, is there evidence that he spoke in this terms? Um, that's it's a huge battle that's that's going on in the uh, amongst poly scholars. But what it actually uh, what it comes down to is is not uh, technically what's there, but just whatever the scholar themselves believes, and they they sort of look at it through that. Um, so what one side says, and 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 there's some interesting text on this too where he says to Ananda at one point, um, he was talking about um, um, people being reborn, you know, so-and-so died was reborn in a higher loka, and, a, and this one got enlightened and all this sort of stuff. And then uh, it was, a, I don't know if it was Ananda or maybe it was Sariputta, but one of his disciples asked him why he was talking about that. And he said, it wasn't to deceive them, it was to gladden their minds. And the implication was that, uh, and he said this a lot, that he would talk within the vernacular, he would use whatever the belief systems were there to inspire people. Uh, and so there's some scholars will take that uh, to say that, you know, well, maybe he didn't actually believe this stuff, but he just said it because it was prevailing. Uh, and other people, um, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi, for example, takes it all pretty literally, you know, that, uh, that he did believe it. Um, I've seen hundreds of what to me feel like hundreds of lives, but um, I won't. Uh, my language for it is uh, what I like to say is I don't believe any of it, but I know it's true. Um, and uh, and and there are, and there are practices, and I've done some of this with with Bonte of of looking at past lives, and. Um, And from my standpoint, yeah, I'm not sure what's what's real, what you know could be empirically verified if we could time travel or something like that. Um, but I know the images and stuff that come out of that, if you're inclined that way, can be actually very useful. Mm-hmm. You know, because explain, I, I could explain all these images I've had as just projections out of my psyche and stuff that's happened, and that may be true. But in terms of the practicality of actually working with that. So I had to forgive myself for massacring a lot of people. That was basically, you know, the, the 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 image was there were some brigands who had uh, I was away and they come through and they killed my my wife and three daughters and I kind of went crazy mm-hmm. um, and uh, and went out after these people and in my mind it was it was better for me to kill somebody that was innocent than to let somebody get away who may have been guilty. And so what happened in the meditation, I have all these images of swords and blood and, you know, because these things just usually come in and pieces of the whole image, you know, came through of what had happened. And then, you know, doing some work with forgiveness, etc., etc. And then all that settled down and other stuff opened up. So whether that was literally true or just, you know, images working out, I I don't know, but uh, it was effective for me. The Buddha even mentioned things like transmigration and these things that Deepama experimented with. Okay, so that's this. This gets really, really tricky, and it and it gets into the text because there are uh, there are 
verses and stuff about people moving through ground and you know, and levitating and all that stuff. Um, um, here's part of the difficulty: is that um, first of all, all of the stuff wasn't written down. Most of it wasn't written down, you know, for hundreds of years, and so. Uh, just even with the best of intentions as it gets passed along, you know, it kind of gets elaborated. I have, have one scholar who I study with, Tony, mm-hmm. you know, who um, he says, you know, we're at the end of a 2,500-year uh, game of telephone. Do you know the game of telephone? Yeah, we, you know, pass it along. Uh, and so it's, it's very clear that a lot of, of the other teachings began to filter in to that. And, uh, and there hasn't been, scholars are starting to do it now, but how to separate out what clearly came from the Buddha and why, what might have come in from other places. Mm-hmm. That's been done, there's a lot of that work's been done in the Bible. So you can separate out what came from John or Luke or whoever the recorder was, what came from the early church, and then there's the pieces left over that may have come, come from Jesus. And so that's been, but you know, the Bible is about like this, and the polycanon is this massive, massive amount of stuff. And, uh, you know, the problems of sorting that out. Um, so, I didn't get an answer there. So, um, so the, the question is about transmigration, uh, you know, souls and stuff like that. So he clearly talked about that a lot. And whether or not uh, he actually talked about that or it was stuff that was grafted onto it later. So, so for example, um, I'm going to have... I have one teacher who says that he thinks that um, in terms of stages of enlightenment, because they're, you know, tradition, there are four stages, each has two sub-stages, uh, that the only thing that was that was important is actually sewed upon a stream entry and then and then full uh, full enlightenment or hardship. Um, but with the Brahmin class that were very much into rebirth and all that stuff, there were these others too they were inserted in there and sometimes they're described in terms of the number of rebirths, etc. It sort of right reminds me of what happened with the martial arts when they came from Asia. You know, because a lot of them, they got white belts and they got black belts. When they started training Americans, well, they just went all these little gradations of, you know, measuring their progress along the way. Um, and I don't know how to sort that out. There is one sutta where the Buddha is talking to Ananda, and he, he asks, how many kinds of beings are there? And so in that, he, and it's not in the Majjhima I'm in the Dignity. I forget where it is. And there he goes, if you, he talks about the eight kinds of noble persons beyond a human. And, and he, he, he defines them each as a kind of a person. That these are different kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that what so, so, well, well. It was, it was actually about. Because I'd, I'd read that um, transmigration and these kind of, you know, like replicating yourself. And yeah, well, I, actually, the Buddha didn't didn't believe in transmigration. It's clear. So that came from later. Yeah. Well, it, it was around a long time before him. But, but I think, 
Yeah. It, it, it doesn't seem like a practical thing. But then I did remember that in one of the suttas he was in two places at the same time. For by sort of location. By location, yeah. That's what he's... Oh, yeah. sorry, by location. Okay. That's migration. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, that was... Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 one the one thing that I would I would say, if you look back into, uh, you know, one of my favorite texts is actually is the fourth book of uh, uh, the Sutta It's called the Agabata, uh, that scholars believe maybe some believe is one of the oldest texts, probably you know written down during his life. And boy, what you find in there is really simple. And, uh, and and quite powerful and very very human. And uh, it's it's the it's the fourth book of the uh, of the Sutta Napada. And if you're interested in it, there are a couple of Aussies <laughs> who um, there there are these uh, the three um, who are deep practitioners, and one was a poet, and they were scholars, uh, and they did a translation of the, of the fourth book. Uh, which is which is quite poetic. Usually, what happens if you see the Pali version, because things do not translate from one language into another, they just don't. And so, what scholars will do is they'll take this phrase and they'll take a word and they'll expand it out into about seven or eight words to give the nuance of it and that. And so, you'll end up, you know, with a sentence with three or four words, and then in Pali, it'll be translated into thirty. Uh, and they have done a wonderful job. Uh, uh, of trying to get the poetry and get it real simple, uh, and um, I'll, I, I'll read you some from it. You know, on, uh, one of these evenings. It's, uh, but but what's in there is, is really simple. And in the Sutta Napata, uh, there's a whole bunch of those suttas that they just begin with him with him saying, you know, I wish you guys would just stop fighting. They say it's over and over. The wise don't argue. Uh, it's just very very human. What do you think the aura is? What is it in your What's the experience of someone's aura? Aura? Oh, it's just energy field. Um, so, uh, I don't know if you can. So, so if, you, if you look at my arm, and uh, don't focus on it, but just sort of, sort of gaze that way. And can you see? It feels like just a little bit of thickness in the air. You know, starting about here and there. And you see that? They call that the etheric body. That, that's the densest part of the aura. Uh, and particularly, you know, as, as things quiet down, I mean, it's, it's easy enough to see. And is it correlated with, like, having a strong aura with being deeper in the spiritual path? Yeah, yeah, but, it, it, but it, it can go the other way. Because I think Hitler probably had a huge one too. I mean, Hitler was incredibly charismatic. It was just uh, with so um, yeah. So they're they're larger and and less large energy fields, but it doesn't necessarily go with an enlightenment. But you know, presumably, you know, somebody who's fully enlightened like that. But 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 also part of that enlightenment is the experience. Of others of a lightness of warmth, right? Not a yeah. malicious, right? And that's why you know the Buddha statues. You know, have these little 
kofirs, the little pyramids and stuff in their head. It's it's like they're talking about the crown chakra, and seeing that, yeah, they they all live. Well, this is a Chinese one, and of course in Christianity it came out as a, it was a halo around the head, but it's that. Okay, I've um, been here a long time. Anything else? So, from what I from reading the sutras, the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, on the night of his enlightenment, mentally tried to determine using analytical thinking what the causes of suffering were. Did I get that right? I don't know. That he thought about dependent origination. That he thought about it in rational, analytical terms. Because of suffering emerged because of some birth of some action that I did. And that birth of action was dependent on Fabantes, Philip Ramsey, a habitual tendency, and so on and so forth. That he actually thought through these stages. And then he looked inside of himself to see if that was true. In other words, he postulated it as a theory first. Um, you know, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't ring true to me. Uh, and, you know, and in the very early text, um, they're not all those links. There's about eight. But eight, I'll take eight. Yeah. I'll take three. Um, <laughs> it's science, then. It's, it's phenomenology. Right. Well, he is a phenomenologist. It's not, right, right. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter if there's, you know, two or ten or twenty. It's just, but he thought about it first analytically. And then he went to prove it to himself by looking to see if that's how it actually acted. See, uh, f- for me to buy in that, I'd have to have some information about how that story was transmitted. <laughs> but we could never find that out. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. We don't have that. Yeah, so, and so, um, so what I always come back to is actually what really feels useful. You know, because that's that's the only thing that makes any difference, and um, and clearly there is an analytical path. I mean, there is an analytical yoga. I mean, there is a way of doing that. Uh, most people who use a lot of analysis, it's really more in terms of trying to deny feelings or push things away. But there is, you know, there is a way of using the mind that can be, you know, analytical and free in that way. Um, so if that's in the Majjhima are you dismissing it as being? Um, uh, mythology? Um, I'm dismissing it as uh, I'm, I'm saying that uh, that we just don't know because the uh, Majjhima Nikaya was not uh, did not reach the form that we've got it in now until at least 300 years after his uh, after he died. Uh, and so uh, to sort out 
you know, what what were later insertions. So, so you know, so here's another thing. We know that after the Buddha died, that there was there was a time, uh, you know, in that part in India in that area, where there was a lot of competition to win people into various sanghas. Okay, so you know, my guru is better than your guru. So we have Alara Kalama and Adaka um, Ramaputta, very, very big, famous, famous people. And so the Buddhists come along and say, you know, my guy, my guy studied with Alara Kalama, and Alara Kalama invited him to study, but it wasn't enough for him. And then Ramaputta said that he surpassed him, but it wasn't enough for him. So do you want to come be a Buddhist or do you want to go to Ramaputta? <laughs> Uh, you know, we have, we have no idea if, if that happened, but we, we know that that kind of stuff was going on, and it would be naive to actually dismiss that as, as, not a, as, a, as an impossibility. So are you looking at the Buddhist, the scope of the Buddhist text as being probability? The whole thing is like probability? Well, what, what I'm looking at, and, uh, and what I'm hoping people will do more and more of, is actually what's been done with the Bible and, and actually sorting out. And you'll never know whether a particular thing came from, from the Buddha, but actually sorting out stuff that clearly could be contaminated from other sources. And then see what's left there uh, and just look at that. And the little bit of work that's been done uh, on that um, I actually find inspiring. Um, but I think we're stuck with all of this, this stuff if we sort of get what we can out of it, take into our own practice, see what makes sense, and, and actually work with it. Um, but I don't think we're ever going to know the literal truth of it. Well, the, the historical stuff, could never, we could never know. Right. Mm-hmm. But certainly the, the Dharma, the teachings, we can explore the reality of those within our own... Um, within our own lives, within our own right. biology. And exactly. Yeah. I mean, right. So, I mean, well, I, I think it's like, it's the history that you just went through. Yeah. It's, it's, it's lore. And yes, it's so, and there was, had to be somebody there because the stiff stuff didn't come out of thin air. And how much of the history is true? It really doesn't matter, really, but the teachings that come out in terms of the Dhamma is uh, verifiable. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And so there, there, it's science, but the rest of it is history. Yeah, that it's empirically verifiable. For me, the only the reason for going through those stories is actually sort out what clearly is myth from what might have might have been there to get some understanding of uh, what those words might mean in their cultural context mm-hmm. uh, and, what, and what he actually did and, and what gets laid on top of it. But so who's doing the best work in terms of sifting through you know, the various um, you know, the Pali texts because you know, pre, whatever would be we could determine would be sort of pre-Theravada era or proto-Buddhist proto-Buddhist before both. Before uh, Buddhaghosa. Yeah, yeah, at least, if not yeah. 
Right. Yeah. So yeah. who's doing the best work in that? Uh, Andy Olinsky, uh, John Peacock, uh, Lee Brasington. Um, Lee Brasington says... Richard Gombrich. That he thinks 20% of the sutas are all that might be original. Yeah. Mm. But he... Mm. Well, I'm just I'm feeling the energy of the room. I think people are getting tired, so I want to just see if there's other stuff that's related to the practice, and we can go on on, on this stuff. It's a lot of fun, but um, we're not all Buddhist nerds. Um. So the question I have, uh, you know, reading the suttas is like reading the Bible. <laughs> so. What creates the evolution? I mean, I think it's coming back to Chris and Eric's question. What is creating within Buddhism the, the evolutionary movement within itself? And is sorting all this scholarship out at all helpful in any kind of way? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have no idea. Well, I, the question comes yeah. from the... You know, we, we hear the Dalai Lama and others that as Buddhism gets transferred from culture to culture, it changes. So right. it went to Tibet and it went through a huge change. Right. It went into China and Chan and it became Zen. You know, all these right. formulations. Right. Are we just getting Buddhism light here? Buddhism what? Light. light. Um, well... Um, I think that what we get are paradigms, which are just things to try out and see what happens. Um, and I think what's happening in the West now is actually a little bit um, in the other direction, that there's actually some filtering out to come. So, for example, John Peacock and a lot of other people, uh, what they're, they're looking at, the various suttas you know, that come out of those various traditions and find which ones, which ones are the same. As some indication it may have some, you know, historical lineage. So, in some way, they're sorting out. What what happened is those three, um, you know, main branches were separated, uh, and isolated just geographically, and as and we're in a position now to look at all of them at once. And so, what you actually do with that becomes very very complicated. But we've got got the uh, the possibility of looking at that and seeing what what comes out of it. So, I, I guess. The underlying question is, is ha, isn't it starting to become institutionalized? Oh, it's, been, it's very institutionalized. Theravadan. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. you've got to go through these systems mm-hmm. and structures and mm-hmm. you lay outside of the pale to some degree. Yeah. Because you are this renegade, you know, we, we've got to do this other thing. Mm-hmm. And people say, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm following my own instincts and inspirations, and um, and, um, and maybe some of it's eluded and maybe some of it's not. Um, but it's, uh, you know, at some point, I think we're all just kind of stumbling through this. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, but I'm I am interested in looking at questions. For example, all this business about you know it's more advantageous to give um, money to uh, to a monk than to a non-monk because monks really leave more suffering. There's more merit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think, and who is transmitting these beliefs? Are the monks? Well, that's that's rather convenient. You know? <laughs> and it's like. Um, so, so, so what I do is, is I look at, and if, if something doesn't ring true to me, to, you know, see if there's alternative explanations. Um, and um, but the point I'm trying to make is, you're not, you, you're doing that for yourself. And there's a small group here that says, "Wow, what you're saying is interesting," yeah. and you're saying it differently. And mm-hmm. You're teaching the practice mm-hmm. that has a different approach. Mm-hmm. But you're anathema to a large group of people within the institutional structure. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you're at the edge, and we know historically that those at the edge gets either crucified or run out of town mm-hmm. as the institution gets stronger and stronger. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So what is that saying about where we are with this whole thing of... Buddhism coming to the West. Um, are you familiar with the work of Claire Graves, Spiral Dynamics? Um, spiral, dynamics. spiral Dynamics. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cohen and Beck, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what he says, you're talking about what, what the evolutionary pressure in this is, and he says when you have a system uh, that's working well and that people are doing it correctly but it doesn't, answer the problems of the day, that's what actually spurs something else coming out of it. The system is broken, it's not working, and people try to fix it, but uh, when you have a consciousness, a way of understanding things, and it doesn't really deal with the issues you are, that creates the, the discomfort that actually pushes people to stretch more. Uh, and I think that's not unique to Buddhism or anything else, but I think that's what the evolutionary force is. I'm vaguely familiar with it. I've seen some of Ken Wilber's talks and stuff, but mm-hmm. I haven't gone into it much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Ken, Ken Wilber uh, critiques it, I, I mean, pretty clearly, but Claire Graves, who was the, the guy that did the original work on it, is, is really some, some helpful stuff. Um, There's a proto-Buddhist movement. Bhante Willem Ramsey is one of them. You know, Bhante Punaji. Bodhicitta. There's a bunch of people, people who are in Asia, who look at this. All these Buddhisms are cultural. I know. I've been to temples for years. This is not cultural Buddhism anymore. This is not cultural Buddhism anymore. You know, for me, it just comes down to does the technique work? Yeah. I don't really care about him. And that's what he thought technique. (laughs) Right. Because I've been so much more successful. This technique. Yeah. Well, and and what's beautiful about that, because if you're doing it, because all techniques, frankly, uh, will run out of gas at some point. You know, because what we're looking at is 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 actually outside of technique. And so there can be really, you know, powerful ones that actually work for a while. I mean the Buddha talked about it, it's it's a raft metaphor. You know, with it, the raft gets you across the stream. You don't want to carry it on the other side, but you also don't want to get off in the middle of the stream. So, you know, you, 
stay with something while it's working, and then you get to this uncomfortable place where you sort of it you know, runs out its usefulness, and then there's a question about you know what's what's next and where you go with that. Um, but uh, uh, certainly when when they're working, you know, they just run with it. And it's fear that gets you stuck in the s- s- system. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I've always struggled with these religious structures, and thankfully I was brought up in Quakerism that, that actively asked for you to bust out of the walls and to s- search for mm-hmm. what works, I mean, what is what the isness is under it all, but but that that um, not feeling as if the only answer is this one I learned right? the, the the Buddhism or the Christianity or the whatever structure and that to explore further or to it is uh, avoided out of fear in my experience. And I would rather, rather not live in the spot, spot of fear. Okay. I could go on all night, but I think... Uh, but we may have uh, <laughs> have um, at the point of diminishing usefulness, and uh, because what it really comes down to in the end, you know, is is really your own practice, uh, and that place where all of us feel at times where it gets so clear that you're kind of outside even your own systems, and you can see, and then you get sucked back in. You know, it's it's those those little glimmers. That we're really after, because that's that's where it evolves, uh, and and the ones that feel uh, really simple and deeply organic. I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I mean, right? Or not? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Praise whomever. <laughs> So, are you going to build on this tomorrow night? Is this part one of a two-part exploration? Well, I'm, I'm, I want to uh, I, I want to take the guts of the uh, Dhammakakapa uh, Vatana Sutta and uh, and open that out. So, uh, I'm not going to go on with the story, but I want to want to take this because it's his uh, it's his first successful teaching, and it's the foundation. Yeah. And it's uh, maybe this makes me an outlier, but from my perspective, the essence of it is easily missed. You know, it's right there in the text. People miss it. Yeah, so, but they don't read it. <laughs> uh, three practices. So this is the preview: turning towards, relaxing into, and savoring. Those, those are my translations of them. That's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. Ooh, talking about where that is. No, it's 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 the one that they miss. It's it's the right. it's it's the third one. It's yeah. it's it's the Naroda. It's like you know, 
<laughs> when there, when, when, when you have moments of peacefulness that come into your practice, to um, okay. <laughs> I, 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 I thought I, I thought I could do a, do a short version, but uh, but but we we will we, 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 we will go into it. <laughs> oh, but it's so cool! It's so cool, you know, and it, and it's right there. It's just it's. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's squashing it. <laughs> so um, it was uh, it was lovely seeing you all individually today. I really look, look forward to that, um, and um, I will uh, apologize once and just let that multiply over, over, all over the place. Um, I do my best to stay on time, but. Um, um, that's it. I do my best, and uh, and I'll get to everybody eventually, and we'll probably slip off time. But I, uh, you know, I want to spend the time that's needed with folks. Um, and if we have a long conversation, we'll take it over to lunch or something like that. But uh, it's really good to see what you guys are doing in your practice. It's really great. So just taking a moment to just gently radiate out. Never mind the words. There's just there's just that that intention for the guy that was yelling out there. You know, it's like you know, may he find comfort inside. You know, these little keeper beings out there, you know, may they live out the fullness of their life. May all beings know their deepest nature. May all beings be free. May all beings know that they are already free. May we stop fighting our freedom and relax into what is. All of us, every last one, may it be so.